0: Uh, if you ask John what some of his interests were, I think you would probably hear that they are historic preservation, fixing old buildings, building neighborhoods, green building, and New Year's Eve. Sands New Year's Eve, I think we'll hear about all those things today. We can work that in. Okay. <laughs> John serves as president of the Market Square District Association as well as Knox Heritage and is additionally involved with the Downtown North Association, the Historic Fort Sanders Neighborhood Association, and the South Knoxville Foundation. He's been intimately involved with the redevelopment of downtown Knoxville and has given his time, talents, energy, and efforts to make this really feel like everyone's neighborhood. Without further ado, Adieu. And, uh, introduce John Craig. Thank you very much, Anna. Thank you, Hannah, for that very nice introduction. I was happy to do this. I'm pleased to be in the company that have also been presenting these over the past few months and the ones to come. I'm going to give a few disclaimers up front. This book, which I enjoyed, is a series of essays on a very wide range of topics, and it sort of jumps, it'll segue from community activism to community farming, and so it this seems a little disjointed. It's not just my ADD. It's because this book kind of tries to cover a lot of different topics. It also is really, really, measures really, really high in the wonk scale. If you are a policy wonk, this will be like a Dan Brown novel to you. This, is, <laughs> this has got statistics and studies and footnotes and, and all of the rest of it. So what I tried to do is, is pull as best I could sort of an overall pattern throughout the thing, sample on different topics as we went through it, and then I threw in some stuff that I wanted to talk about that wasn't in the book. The other thing I'll say is I am not a role model. I live in Farragut. I drive a big-ass truck that gets crappy gas mileage. <laughs> Don't always turn the air conditioner down to what I'm, or up to what I'm supposed to do and heat down to what I'm supposed to but I'm trying. I am a recycle fanatic now. I'm known to carry a can around for hours downtown, just waiting until I can throw it into the back of the truck to take it out to throw it in the recycling. And uh, we are trying to utilize green products in as many of our projects as possible and work them into the into the mainstream. So, let's get started. And I want you all to participate in this as much as possible because it's not—you don't have to have read the book to have an interest in a lot of this stuff or have an opinion about a lot of this stuff. So, first and foremost, c- cities are inherently green. They are just designed to be green. And if you think about it, most cities came together before we had cars, before we had the way of getting where anywhere far away. So they were very compact, they were walkable, you had a lot of density, and you had all of the services relatively close by. And I'll talk more on, on each of these as we go. Leveraging of infrastructure. You know, if I build a project, if I build a three-story apartment building, if I do that on a lot in downtown, the utilities are already there, the streets are already there, the fire, police protection services are already there, the marginal cost of adding an additional resident or worker or whatever in a downtown area is very, very, very small. If I do that same building in a greenfield out in East Knox County, say. You have to build roads to get to it, you've got to extend sewers, you've got to extend water lines, you've got to have electricity to go to it. All of those things cost money. Currently, the way that we price development, we don't charge for that. I mean, there are charges for connection fees and those kinds of things, and occasionally a community will add a fee if they have to extend a sewer line, whatever. But for the most part, we all share in the cost of extending those services into those greenfield areas and those developments. So downtowns and c- cities overall generally leverage that much better and much more efficient, make more efficient use of the services that exist. Public transport is also uh, readily available in downtown. One of the things that that encouraged me and convinced me that downtown had really sort of reached a tipping point was when cabs started showing up downtown. I mean, you could always maybe get one at one, of the, one or the other hotels, but when they just started showing up and just hanging out at the end of Market Square or cruising up and down Gay Street, because each of those is their own little business, and they have to go where supply and demand is going to yield them the best return. And so the fact that they are downtown is a really, really encouraging sign. We've got a historic building stock. You know, a lot of cities ended up in the name of modernizing their downtown, wiping out their historic building stock and building new things in the 60s and the 70s. Most of those cities and most of those downtowns are not places you would want to visit. I won't name names, but you all probably can think of examples. We were lucky in that we didn't bother to tear down ours. It just went vacant for a long time, but it was largely preserved. We've lost different buildings along the way, but for the most part, we had something there that could be redeveloped later on as People came back to the, the city. The last is shared space. And this one is just one that I think is important. It gets back to the whole idea of community. You know, when you are in a downtown, one of the, the things you'll hear about pe- from people who live down here is you have to schedule 15 extra minutes anytime you go anywhere because you have to stop along the way and talk to people. And I think there is a key element. That when you know you are going to run into other people every day, you treat them differently than you would if you aren't going to see them in the next year or so. And so being in a, in a city tends to throw people together more often. That makes some of them uncomfortable, but it generally makes them behave better, I think. <laughs> Density. 80% of us, it's not like USA today, of us now live in a metro region. As you know, you know cities used to be defined as just city limits, and then they became MM, MSMAs. And now they've become whole statistical regions. So nine-county region or the 16-county region around Knoxville gets counted in the, in the overall metro area. But there was a, a tipping point where you know, over the last few years more people lived in cities around the world than living out in rural areas. So we're also in this country expecting a 40% population growth by 2050. And that means you've got to build more places for people. By 2025, it's projected that over half of the built environment would not have existed in the year 2000. It's a tremendous amount of building. And you have to decide where you're going to build that. Walkability. One of the great websites, if you haven't seen this, is walkscore.com. And you can go in, you enter an address, and it will tell you the walkability, the walk score of that location. Where we're standing right now, where we're sitting right now at the History Center, the walk score is 92 out of 100. They classify that as a walker's paradise. Now, if you live, say, out in Farragut somewhere, the walk score is 14, which means it's car-dependent. I mean, you, you, you can get worse than that, but it's, it, it's really hard. When you have walkability, it allows you to, to get around, interact with folks, uh, it ends up making... It produces virtually no carbon whatsoever, and um, it ends up uh, reinforcing itself because the more walkable things are, the more development you have in a compact area brings more services, brings more people. Along the way, I'm going to read little bits and pieces out of here. And this is sort of an interesting juxtaposition about the whole idea of density and walkability and and development. And what it says is, uh, an area served only by automobile-designed streets cannot accommodate high-density development because it's physically impossible to bring high volumes of people to a particular place by automobile, an inherently low-capacity mode. Further, the amount of space that must be devoted to carriageway for autos and parking cars diminishes the amount of space that can be developed for other uses. Similarly... An area zoned for low density development cannot have robust transit options because it lacks sufficient population to support frequent and comprehensive transit. Thus areas zoned and built for auto use, low density places with parking requirements, are virtually guaranteed to have auto use dominance. So if you can design more densely, it encourages walkability, reduces the importance or even the need to have a car. This one I threw in, although it's in the book, it just sort of gives it passing glance. Preservation is green. Preservation of existing uh, assets reuses existing buildings, existing building stock. It retains embodied energy. I'm going to get back to that in just a second. It cuts down on landfill use because you aren't demolishing and carting away stuff that has already been put in place. It preserves our history. It connects generations, and old buildings are cool, so... And one of the ways I like to think about this is it has to do with physics. And you all look like you haven't gotten your recommended daily allowance of physics today. So uh, if you remember from high school, you've got your chemical energy, you've got your kinetic energy, which is the energy required to lift things, whatever. And then we also hear talk in, in green circles about embodied energy. That's a material... In, is in, has in it the energy required to produce it so for instance if you make something out of wood it's the energy required to grow that tree to the point where it can be harvested the actual energy required to harvest it and process it and cut it into a who by four versus the energy say of a metal stud in terms of mining, refining producing, forming transporting and Those things get get factored into it. Well, usually it's talked about in terms of materials, but it can also be talked about in terms of buildings. So if you look out the building here, you see the Holston next door. Just pick out a brick or a carving or an element out there and think about it this way, that you have the energy required to produce that material in the first place. It was stone. The energy actually required uh, geologically to, to form that, the energy it took to extract it from the earth, the energy it took to carve it or to shape it, the the energy to, to transport it into place. And that's when it starts to get kind of more interesting because then it's the energy required by the worker to lift it into place and to set it where it goes. All that energy is still there. It's all still sitting in that building, in that brick or in that carving hadn't gone anywhere, it's now called potential energy. Because if it were to fall, it would hurt you. That's the, <laughs> but it is, each of these buildings has its own embodied energy because of all the materials that go into it. But also if you think about it, the creative energy of the architect to be able to design the building, the intellectual energy of the engineer to calculate exactly how it needed to be constructed. The actual energy it took to build the building, the commercial energy to operate the building and to keep it occupied all of those years. So when you think about a downtown or you think about a set of buildings, think about the amount of energy and time and effort that went into that building being where it is. That's why preservation is so valuable. It's not just because old buildings are cool, but because old buildings represent a tremendous amount of energy that have gone into placing them where they are. And you think of cities overall, they have that same embodied energy. All right, we're going to talk about transit. This is a really stunning thing for me. Knox Area Transit serves 3.2 million passengers today. They served 20 million passengers in 1923. Anybody got a guess why? Density. Density. What? Somebody said cars. 1923, most people didn't own cars, right? They only had one way of getting around. You either walked, you rode a horse, or you rode a streetcar. The first streetcars that Cat operated were, in fact, horse-drawn carriages that that carried people back and forth. If you read, if anybody's a fan of Jack Neely, Jack Neely, author of the new book, Market Square, available wherever books are sold. Jack will tell you that Knoxville, around 1900, was more densely populated than Chicago. It was, in many ways, if you think about this, we used to be what we are now aspiring to be again. We were a very efficient, compact city. Now, we were also fairly dirty, not very uh, environmentally conscious in terms of air and water quality, but in terms of transit and those kinds of things, you had people who either lived in downtown or lived in the immediate neighborhoods around it, and the trolley cars connected you to each of those neighborhoods, so there really wasn't a need to have a car. It was more of a luxury if you wanted to go out to the country of, say, Fountain City. Okay, so that sort of talks about why cities are wonderful things. So let's talk about some of the things that we could do to enhance the greenness of uh, cities. Blue-green practices are, are, uh, this is a chapter uh, or an essay in the book, talk about those green practices having to do with water. Green roofs, talked a lot about, we'll talk a little bit more about. Green walls, where you can actually cover a wall like this one in uh, foliage. Rainfall harvesting and uh, reuse. And pervious paving, meaning lets water go through. This, this book, one thing I will say about this book, is very academic, but all sprinkled throughout were these little gems, just little sentences sort of tossed in, and this was a great one. In nature, most rainfall does not travel far from where it falls. You think about it, that's true kind of goes, falls, soaks into the ground, stays there, is absorbed by the trees. And in a city, typically, we spend a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of money getting the rain as far away as we possibly can, as quickly as we can. So um, this is a water barrel. This is a water barrel that the city is offering on October 2nd. Is that right? Westtown Mall? I think that's right? Yep. Uh, for $50, you can buy one of these, they'll provide the connections to hook them to your gutter. You can harvest your rainwater, use it to water your garden, whatever. It's got a little screen to keep mosquitoes out and all of the rest of it. The other thing is uh, there's a whole chapter in the book on uh, stream restoration. And uh, one of the things that, that struck me, you know, Knoxville is sort of defined by our geography, like, most, like a lot of cities and uh, one of the geographic features that most people don't get to see very much of uh, are the creeks that flank downtown. First Creek, where James White first built his tub mill, uh, and which served as the drinking water and sanitary system for the you know initial settlement of Knoxville. Uh, most people in downtown, you have never seen it because you can't see it, it's in a culvert underground. Now, part of the Smart Fix project they ended up exposing and reopened a portion of First Creek up by uh, the interstate. And, of course, you can see it as it goes on up closer to the Broadway Shopping Center and those kinds of things. Second Creek runs underneath the World's Fair site, also in a culvert. And uh, it was just talked about the effort that goes into, in most cities, locating prime real estate. It's usually located either by park or by water. And we've got a lot of our water covered up in culverts. Green roofs. We won't go into all the details about them, but green roofs can provide lower roof temperatures. Uh, one building, uh, they measured just yet, and a similar building right next door. It was a 100-degree difference in the surface temperature of the roof. In cities, the heat island effect, whereas if you have a lot of very hot, very black roofs that can tend to affect the climate around the city, it can reduce the heat island effect. You'll see one way of dealing with that. A lot of the roofs downtown have uh, white reflective um, Roofing material on them. Uh, This has a green roof typically has the same level of reflectance as a white spray roof does, but also reduces stormwater runoff. It filters rainwater before it goes down into uh, the system. It lowers the heating and the cooling cost, and it creates a healthier atmosphere. Creates more O2. Creates more O2, exactly. So, is this practical in the real world? Well, Chicago decided that it was. They started in 2000. And they, the Mayor Daly decided that they were going to be one of the greenest cities in the country. The first green roof they installed was on City Hall, covered 20,000 square feet. Today they've got over 400 green roof projects underway or completed and over 7 million square feet of green roofs, more than all of the U.S. cities combined. And about 7 million square feet more than we have. <laughs> We got a handful here and there, little bits and pieces. In Chicago, what they've done is they promoted it by giving incentives for developers. Uh, they give either expedited planning review. Uh, they give a bonus on the floor area ratio that you can have, the density of the building. They recognize the roof as a runoff control measure, which gets factored into their permitting process. Other cities treat green roofs as undeveloped open spaces for estimating the site runoff uh, and some cities actually go the sort of the stick way because they require twenty percent increase in the pervious area from the existing conditions anytime you're going to do a new or redeveloped project in uh, that city. The other is uh, living walls, which we showed before. Sean, where the rates are concerned, what are the big costs on that? I mean, that- Green roof is about fifty percent more expensive to install up front but it typically makes the roof last twice as long. So for the first 20 years, which is the typical lifespan of a roof, it is more expensive to do the green roof. Once you go to 21 years of the replacement of the roof, which is a huge expense, then it jumps ahead and stays ahead for the rest of of, uh, its life. Talking about living walls. Like living walls, green facades that use climbing vines can be optimized to become predictable components of building climatization systems. The vines behave like miniature sun-powered pumping networks, lifting water up the face of the building and distributing it uniformly to the leaf surfaces where evaporation occurs. Vines are very effective at providing evaporative cooling measures because of the immense surface area of the foliage and its natural tendency to proliferate in the areas that receive the highest solar radiation. Kind of makes sense. Evapotranspiration, that was my new favorite word out of this project. That's when roots absorb grain water, sends it out to the leaves, and the leaves evaporate the water, and it ends up creating this little cloud around the surface of the, of the wall. Yes, ma'am. But what is the trade-off between the environmental advantages and the integrity, then, of the exterior of the structure It's a good question. Yeah, so if you have... If you have an existing structure, a historic structure, you definitely wouldn't want to necessarily cover that in vines. You can, if uh, for instance, over here on the SNW project, we have a little courtyard area back behind the gelato place. We're getting ready to cover that in a green wall. Most people think, okay, well, if you put ivy, it's going to destroy the mortar and the brick and all the rest of it. There are plants that do that, where they sink their roots actually into the surface. But there are others. Uh, Virginia creeper is one that just clings to the surface but doesn't actually penetrate the surface. So your local landscape architect can help you with that. Also, there's a product called Greenscapes. It's, it's like a dense on material that you can attach to the outside of the building and uh-huh. it will grow like along that you know, instead of building. Absolutely. Hey, a related topic, urban forestry. Trees reduce the ambient air temperature. Uh, estimated in some places two to three degrees. That ends up lowering the temperatures, which reduces the electronic or the electricity demand for air conditioning. It filters air, reduces dust, reduces runoff, and serves as home for little birdies and bees and things like that that are necessary for the ecosystem. Interesting discussion happened on this the other day. We had a public meeting. Bob, would you care to comment about the public meeting and the discussion that occurred there about trees? Yeah, exactly. We had a public meeting on Union Avenue, redoing the sidewalk project, trying to extend it. the sidewalk. there's some discussion about trees, while well, they have all the benefits that John shows right here, they also potentially has a negative impact. Some people's minds on retail, uh, and so there's a general discussion there: are trees better bad for retail, or mm-hmm. trees better bad for downtown environment? Mm-hmm. So, what's that? Well, the concern was one of the shop owners who has a shop on Union Avenue said, if, depending on which tree you plant, it could end up blocking the view of my window. And her windows are very, very nice. She puts a lot of time and effort into them. So it became an issue of, well, you know, could you plant a tree that had a higher crown Can- canopy? Yeah. And uh, could, you, could you make that, you know, so that it was more visible underneath? Yeah. That's the urban balance yet, the right. Yeah. For those of you who don't know Bob Wetzel... With the city used to be over public service now in redevelopment, uh, but has probably forgotten more about trees in cities than Plant most of us. F- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Uh huh. No, I've just read studies that planting trees and creating a an barrier between pedestrian traffic and vehicular traffic, it it, uh, it creates a more comfortable zone and you have a lot more pedestrian activity. We could look at Knoxville in the 70s and 80s. There were very few trees in and around the city, and there was a very little pedestrian traffic. And I don't think any shop owner would want to go back to the 70s and 80s, even if it's in the downtown area. Mm-hmm. That, no, I would say, as long as your sign would be saying they don't care. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, yeah that's right. Once again, it's all a balance. That's that's the trade-off to know what you want to do. So. Uh, One other thing I'll mention, uh, this other initiative, Uh, Dogwood Arts Festival has uh, started a program called Bazillion Blooms, which is intending to repopulate the East Tennessee area with uh, native dogwood species that are spring-blooming and disease-resistant. And so you can go to bazillionblooms.com and learn more about that. Green affordable housing. This was another uh, essay in the book talking about how... uh, It was important particularly for lower income families to make sure that they did not have a gap, that they had the accessibility to uh, uh, green affordable housing. Many states are requiring uh, green building practices in any low income project. Low income housing tax credit scoring now incorporates greening as part of that. Um, There are public health benefits, there are lower utility costs, and there can be lower transportation costs if they're planned out uh, well. Madeline Rojero with Community Development and City. Madeline, can you talk about the five or the set? Sorry, the seven right, energy actually, houses. The uh, Knox Housing Partnership is a nonprofit developer, affordable housing developer in Knoxville. Um, with city funds, they built the first seven lead gold affordable homes. And, um, and we were, actually they were the first seven legal homes, period, in the state, except for Al Gore's house. That went home. Uh, and by the way, several, some of them are still for sale. We just came from a meeting about that. Um, there, there's some subsidy involved too, so we encourage you to take a look at them. But um, the local, the Tennessee chapter of the American Family Association is actually recognizing um, the work of KHP You know, one of the most uh, gratifying things is to see how uh, well green building practices are starting to sort of seep into the, the general commercial landscape in terms of new homes, commercial buildings, whatnot. Uh, Beth Eason, uh, Elizabeth Easton Architecture, just moved into the uh, uh, WROL building here uh, in the same project as the SNW uh, and is, I believe, going to qualify as the first... Uh, Lead interior rehab in the state. I think is what we're shooting for, something like that. You know, the, and the thing that's amazing you know, I was through this they had a, a kind of an interesting quote in here. You know, green building practices date back to at least 500 BC with the Greeks. <laughs> and the and in the book they quote the Greek playwright Aeschylus. You didn't know you were going to get him in here, did you? Uh, He wrote, only primitives and barbarians lack knowledge of houses turned to face the winter sun. (laughs) 2,500 years later, we're starting to get a clue that maybe we ought to look at that again. Specifically on low income, uh, just uh, you know, the, the, as the importance of lowering the overall utility cost, transportation costs, and the public health benefits. You know Families with incomes between 20000 and 50000 spend an average 29% of their income on transportation and 28% on housing. Um, as far as the, you know, one of the things that get asked a lot is, well, isn't it more expensive to build? Well, in 2003, sort of the definitive study of these projects found, this is 2003 now, so six years ago, that it cost about 2% more to build with green building practices, but that the savings in terms of lower energy uses and all the rest of it was 10 times that in terms of benefit coming back. Now that green products are more readily available, prices have come down. You know, I put cotton insulation in a lot of the projects that I do. More recycled blue jeans, you can buy that costs the same as fiberglass insulation. It's easier to install because you don't have to have gloves and all the rest of it. You just tuck it in there. It has the same insulation, the same R value. Why wouldn't you do that? So it doesn't have to be exotic. Uh, I will also mention, if you want to get uh, learn more, Knox Heritage is, as part of their vintage homes programs, is doing a home on the edge of Fort Sanders over here at 1011 Laurel Avenue, right above the Candy Factory. It was, uh, for those of you who were in town during the World's Fair, it was the solar energy house during the World's Fair, so it is being redone as a complete green project. Uh, The city is helping with uh, solar installation, solar panel installation, both thermal and photovoltaic to help with that, and we'll be featuring a lot of different uh, green products that you can work into your own uh, project. yeah. Just while we're on this, I'm curious, as a commercial developer, um, I'm an advocate for the third-party rating systems like LEED because it sort of is a quality control. and You know, everyone, you're getting a lot of folks saying they're green, and to me, a third-party certification sort of is a stamp of approval that the community knows they've actually got some green. But Knoxville, in some ways, is lagging behind other communities in the number of LEED buildings. I'm just curious, as a developer, do you see the need for additional incentives to improve why don't we have more lead commercial businesses You know, it it is not. It is working its way through the system. If you talk to the architecture firms, virtually every architecture firm now has the majority of their architects lead certified, art as in our, uh, you know, in their licensure. Uh, so that will work its way into the designs over time, but you 've got to have the property owners or the developers that are up to speed about the benefits of that and The main thing is contractors are just general contractors are just slow to change you know they have a product that they have worked with for the last twenty years. the last thing they want to do is go learn about something new because if they know something will work it means they don 't have to come back and fix something later on they don 't want to end up having to work that in now some of them that 's not all of them, but it 's it is the majority of them, and so there's slow change that comes. So you either got to have property owners that force it or architects who are very persuasive in their, uh, in their uh, advocacy. One of the key elements of this book was talked about sort of the, the both, both ends of the spectrum. You've got to have regional planning. You've got to look at the big picture, but you've also got to have small-scale projects and individuals who are energized to, to make things happen on a very, very local basis. On the uh, regional uh, side of things they talked about a process to sort of identify the key assets in the area preserving key ecological landscapes, incorporating green space into the urban areas organize those areas around pedestrians and transit and then use green sources of power. You know, A lot of these things have been done and are continue to be done but you've got to look at the overall and be able to say okay it's not just downtown. It's not just the city limits. It's not just the county. It, it is the entire region. We've got to figure out how we interact. You know, water and air don't respect boundaries. You know, state lines or the county boundaries or any of the rest of it. And it really is a regional wide issue that we have to to try and address. Um, yeah, one of the quotes from the book, in Green uh, Regional Design, once the landscapes for preservation are protected, the next step is to determine supportive transportation investments and associated land uses. Okay. And they did a good job talking about how in a lot of infrastructure-type projects, early on, you know, the focus was on just getting infrastructure projects done, drainage and uh, util- other utilities, those kinds of things. And you had sort of a command and control set up because we were trying to get these systems in place throughout most of the the 20th century. And that was done. Utilities, frankly, were sort of behind the scenes. They didn't, as it said in the thing, they didn't ask much of citizens except pay your taxes and pay your utility bills and we'll take care of the rest of it. Well, it's become obviously more apparent that people are wanting to get more involved. And there are things where in order to be effective, you have to engage people at a very, very local level. You know, demand management. You know, people uh, at first, when TVA started talking about saving energy, they were like, I'm not sure I understand that. Why are you trying to save energy? Because you guys are trying to sell energy. Wouldn't you want me to use more of it? And it becomes a trade-off between the cost of building a multi-billion dollar nuclear power plant and the cost of running that, Versus if you can just save a little bit of energy and peak power here, it might only cost you a few hundred thousand dollars to be able to save that and avoid the need to, to build that plant now or maybe, you know, 10 years from now. Recycling is another example. I mean, the city is, has done quite a bit in terms of recycling. Uh, and even out in the county with some of the private uh, folks, you know, we have, uh, with, our, with Waste Connections, uh, they've gone to single stream recycling. If you don't have single-stream recycling, it is the greatest thing since sliced bread. It means you don't have to sort. You pile everything into one container. You don't care. It just all goes in one place. They come, they pick it up, they haul it off. It is the greatest thing ever. We, you know, we have the big roller cans, and we went from having, you know, uh, the the trash pickup once, you know, comes once a week, and the roller can gets picked up on the recycling side once every two weeks. Well, we fill up the roller can every week, and we have to sort of hold off until they come the next week. If if I miss the regular trash pickup, it's no big deal because usually I've only got one or two bags in there. If I miss the recycling, I'm screwed and I've got to haul everything, you know. (laughs) Plus, what they've started to do is a really cool incentive program. They've got a little uh, tag that they came and put on the side of the can. It's a little uh, radio frequency thing. And what they do is the truck comes, picks up the can, weighs it, and uses the little radio frequency thing to identify that your house had this many pounds of recycling. And then they give you, uh, it's a thing called Recycle Bank, and they send you points for discounts and coupons and and things like that. So those kinds of programs, small scale, decentralized programs require an engaged public. So you have to have people who are willing to participate. I've got just two or three quotes in here that spoke to that. Yeah, we talked about on the utility side. For utility managers, reliability and supply, facility, capacity, facility availability, and response time to outages is a top priority. Guessing at the long-term contributions that could result from small-scale initiatives does not meet the standard of care or performance expected of the utility industry. Okay all these emerging approaches to providing reliable services while managing resources and protecting the environment rely on an engaged citizenry with an ingrained stewardship ethic. These imply deep cultural changes, not simply superficial behavior modification and technology improvements. Deep cultural change always originates in passionate, committed individuals and small groups with vision for hope. So what it's saying is you have to engage people. You have to have them be a part of the process. You've got to figure out a way to get them involved and get them passionate about it because if you don't, nothing else you do will matter. You cannot, you know... Individual citizens can't go build a wastewater facility. But a utility can't go turn off your light bulb if you're not in the room. So you've got to have both ends and you've got to have both sides talking to one another. That's one of the main lessons out of this book. And, you know... This is an example. The South Knox Water Tower is up on the ridge there that suddenly appeared one day, to the surprise of many. And, <laughs> and the fact was everybody was just doing their job. You had folks, engineers, who were calculating what they thought the load was going to be up there. They were dealing with public safety in terms of fire protection and the need for water pressure up there. And they came up with a solution negotiated it with the developer that was helping to pay for it, and went ahead and sent it through the process because it was an unoccupied structure. It didn't make it onto the radar screens of most people. Went through on the consent agenda at MPC and county commission, uh, city council, and then suddenly it started to appear, and a lot of people were saying, what's going on? Well, you know, everybody was doing their job, but they didn't think in terms of, is anybody going to care about this? Is anybody going to care that the ridgeline that has defined Knoxville to the south for the last forever suddenly has a big water tower sticking out of it. So, you know, it was an embarrassment to some folks. It angered some folks. But more than anything, it sort of catalyzed people saying, wait a minute, we need to think about this. We need to define what it is that's important to us, whether it's views or whether it's, you know, Process or whatever else it is, let's figure out what's important to us so we can protect it before it disappears. This also led to the, uh, help me Finbar, Ridgeline, Slope, and Hillside, Hillside. Hillside. yes. Finbar Saunders, county commissioner who serves on that task force. Oh, sorry, who attends the meetings of that task force. (laughs) But that's, and you know, this, this I, I'm sure you all read in the news, this engendered a whole lot of hullabaloo about people, you know, who didn't want their property rights taken away because they wanted to be able to develop their property any way they want to. Well, you know, we've never been able to just develop our property any way we wanted to. That, that's not been the way it's been for the last couple of hundred years. Uh, and this is a question of the trade-offs between development rights and community rights, and what the preference of the community is overall. So, just a couple of case studies of what folks are doing. New York City, uh, had a lot of stuff in there about New York City, Uh, set a goal uh, to reduce carbon emissions 30% by 2030. They uh, looked at it, discovered that cars are 10 times more polluting than transit or other forms of getting around. They figured out that the average cab drives 40,000 miles a year just cruising for fares. Now it's not taking people one place or the other, it's just looking for people to pick up. So they started looking at things like congestion pricing, because traffic, set in this case south of 86th Street in New York, have to pay a fee to be able to come in, and That's going to reduce traffic by about 7%, but it's going to raise about $400 million a year for them to use on transit projects and all the rest of it to overall reduce it. Uh, New York is projected to add a million more people by uh, 2030. Um, Some of this this may only be interesting to me, but the cars that New Yorkers own would cover a space seven times the size of Central Park. But New Yorkers have one of the lowest car ownership rates of anywhere in the country. 90% of most households in this country, or 90% of households in this country own at least one car. New Yorkers, it's about 44%. People who live in Manhattan, about 22%. If you had to make space for all of the cars that they don't own, the cars that they would own if they were owned at the rest of the rate, it would take up the entire island of Manhattan, if they were parked end-to-end, side-by-side. So obviously you can't have that. You've got to have a great transit system. They've got a great transit system. They're spending billions of dollars improving that transit system to be able to get people in and out of the city. Walking constitutes one-third of all trips in New York are walking, and they make up at least a portion of every trip talked about uh, congestion pricing. London has also implemented a similar congestion pricing scheme. And then finally, to deal with the uh, taxi issue, there's a mandatory replacement of 13,000 taxis with hybrids by 2012 that's projected to save 50 million gallons of gas per year. Well, what about us? Luckily, we have good representation from the city. Knoxville. Knoxville, as you should know, has been named Solar America City. That's one of 15, huh? We think eight, eight. sorry. One of eight cities around the country received a grant uh, to help develop uh, solar infrastructure. Uh, We have a full-time sustainability coordinator, Aaron Burns, who is not here, but uh, if you want to learn about sustainability, you can go to the city website and just enter in sustainability. It's got a ton of information. Um, there is a energy inventory and strategic plan, I've got it if you want to see it, uh, but similar to what uh, New York did for 2030, Knoxville has done in terms of inventorying exactly how much energy the city uses and laying out some strategic plan goals for how to, to reduce that. Uh, KUB has the green power program where you can buy for four bucks a month on your utility bill, indicate that you want to buy blocks of green power. We got 400 with the city pushing. Got 400 blocks of green power sold in downtown. Stormwater program. So it showed you the uh, water barrels. Uh, we've got the recycling initiative. There's one going on in the city county building now to drastically reduce or to increase the amount of recycling in the city county building. Compost bin. The city will also help you get a compost bin at a reduced rate if you want to compost in your backyard and put it in your uh, in your garden. So wrapping up. Kind of the key points, regional planning and small project implementation are both required for success. You can't do one or the other, but you need to do both. If you focus on the public realm and assume a complex mix of uses, it's not just about cars, it's not just about transit, it's not just about pedestrians, it's about everybody. And then engage citizens early and often in the process, even in traditionally bureaucratic areas like infrastructure. Get them involved so that they understand what it is they can do. And that's it. Thank you very much. Got any questions or want to discuss? And I finished four minutes early. <laughs> uh, this book is in the library. This is, uh, they've got, I don't know how many copies you all have of it. About five copies wandering around. Um, and I have a copy if somebody wants to borrow mine and wants to return it.